Welcome to our Roots Say That We're Sisters podcast. This podcast series is sponsored by the Marquette Forum with support from Marquette University's Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion and the Haggerty Museum of Art. It's an extension of a Marquette University mural project to highlight and uplift diverse women-identified individuals whose images and contributions have been systematically made invisible. The artist, Mauricio Ramirez, used photographs of BIPOC women associated with Marquette as inspiration for the images in the mural. The Our Roots Say That We're Sisters podcast preserves the stories of female-identifying students, faculty, staff, and alumni who've used their gifts to make a meaningful impact on others, especially those who remain unsung heroes. I'm your host, Sheena Carey, from the Diedrich College of Communication. Joining us today is Wisconsin Court of Appeals, District 1, Judge Maxine White. Thank you for agreeing to share your story with us today. And Judge White, what is that story? Well, it's quite an amazing one. I think it's a journey that's a testament to the strength of African-Americans and Africans and truth to the story about it really takes a village to raise a child. My journey started as a child of sharecroppers, grade school educated in the Delta in Mississippi. And some people would be familiar with my home through Fannie Lou Hamer's story the first black woman who tried to vote and ended up shutting down a nation (laughs) from radio land because of her efforts to let people know that we truly were descendants of slaves, but we were not enslaved by the experience. And so we believed forever that we had something to offer. My parents were sharecroppers. There were 11 of us. I'm number eight in the family, and it was a hard life. It was one filled with fear, all kinds of insurrections. Some of them are reported through John Lewis and Dr. Martin Luther King and Miriam Wright Elman came to the state to fight the fight. And as I indicated, Kay Mills tells the story about Fannie Lou Hamer completely. But that journey is one that seems to be so distant yet so near because I still, with three college degrees, one from Marquette University Law School, feel and experience the kinds of feelings that I had as a child, that is, that being misunderstood, being disregarded, being invisible, and having to fight even to this day, because there are some who just believe that the color of our skin and where we hail from, and whether it's economic, whether it's Black, Indigenous, or other people of color, treated as if we do not deserve what America has to offer, although It's the blood of our four parents that built this nation. How have those challenges, as well as your identity, influenced the choices that you've made? I think that growing up fearing day and night, like some children do now for other reasons perhaps, that perhaps when you wake up in the morning, your parents will be gone. Perhaps they don't believe it's from a hangman's noose or because your dad made the straw boss who owned the land unhappy with his gaze not being on the ground, but in his eyes. Perhaps it was as a child having asthma, waiting at the back of a clinic and never being admitted because there was never a space for a person with black skin because the whites had not been served. And so when Marion Might Elman and others in my life, other people in the churches in Mississippi and my parents too, led me to believe that rather than feeling sorrow and fear, we should feel empowered to do something about it. And so I've always been one who have found the strength 
and my faith in God, in my family, and in my community to get up the next day and shake off whatever was befuddling me the day before and work to make a difference. So tell us a little bit about this journey from a Mississippi sharecropping farm to Wisconsin Court of Appeals. Well, it was one, as I indicated, that's been nudged by my parents. They always believed that although, for example, the buses passed us by on the gravel road and the dust and the mud was splashed on us as we made it to the one-room church school with uh, four classes in each room, they always said, you got to work with what you got. So what I did was when I entered the high school, the all-black high school, and there was fires and storms all around about do we integrate or not? There was Brown versus Board and et cetera. I had black school teachers who walked up to me and say, you're either going to be out there fighting or you're going to stay in here and fight for an education. So when you're out there fighting, you can give it your best. We didn't have counselors. So they actually became people in the hallway saying, hey, you did so good in my class. Why don't you try to go to Mississippi Valley State? Well, look up Alcorn State University and see whether or not they'll let you in. You got really good grades. One of the two wanted my dad to sort of give him the farm as a down payment on a $600 scholarship. And I said, no, I'm number eight. You're not to number 11 yet. And you have no other way of making a living. So I went to Alcorn and I worked through jobs and I left there debt free. I followed the advice of other African-Americans who knew that the messages that some of us were receiving were not good enough because we hadn't had the exposure. So they gave us what they knew. They told us where to go and where we could find help. So my first degree is from Alcorn State University. I finished in three and a half years. And I was part of the Great Migration, maybe on the tail end of it. I had earlier known that my siblings, older ones, moved here to the Midwest. And they got married and was doing okay. And so I followed them here because we were warned with the fires at Alcorn and the Klan in Vicksburg, not so far away, that if you stayed there, what are you going to do? School teachers took the jobs and they kept them for life. We had one or two doctors. And so coming to a land like Chicago or Milwaukee gave us greater opportunities and they were right. So I worked uh, here. But again, it's that community aspect that I want people to hold on to. You can't do it alone. Don't try and be alone in it. You don't have to be alone, even if you feel lonely. So while I was working for the federal government, United States Department of Health and Human Services, Social Security Administration is where it's most reflected in the communities in America. Some black women had brought a civil rights lawsuit. They were not the beneficiaries of their suit. They probably never got a dime that they deserved. But there were those of us who had black colleges at the time would give us our civil service rating and card if you took the test. I had my card in my pocket right with my driver's license, and I carried it with me. So one day on a lunch break from a personnel specialist job at Basaris Erie on the south side, I walked into the Social Security office with my card and I was hired on the spot. And therein began this career that led me to Marquette many years later. Pat Harris, Secretary Harris, worked for Jimmy Carter's administration, was looking for 25 people across the land. I competed to get one of those 25 spots and landed a job as an intergovernmental management specialist in Washington, D.C. As a reward for the work that we did as gophers for all kinds of assignments in D.C., they paid for a master's degree in public administration from the University of Southern California. Milwaukee always remained my home because I had four sisters here. A brother came later and expanded family. 
this became the second base to first base in Indianola, Mississippi. And so while a friend of mine, you probably know her, Phoebe Williams, worked for the same administration, had some of the same experience. She hails from Tennessee, Memphis. We were working together. We've been friends since. And she said, I'm going to change careers and do what I've always wanted to do. And I said, I want to be a lawyer. I've watched Miriam Wright Elliman. I know what the law can do for the lives of people. I know having that degree, whether you practice or whether you use it in other ways in business, people, it sort of gains you a leg up. You have to keep the standards and the ethical things and do everything you can right. But degree is really important. So Phoebe went to Marquette and she said, you should apply. And I said, oh, what are they going to say? I went to a black college. She's going to say, you did good. I'm going to say, I've been out for a while. She's going to say, you're ready. And so you got to have people pushing you up close and from afar. So I would go to the dean's office at lunchtime from my job, and I would wait to get an interview. It took the third time showing out and telling them who I was. I was admitted to Marquette Law School. I ended up on law review with good grades. I had three work experiences while I was there for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. I clerked for one of the justices. I worked for the U.S. Attorney's Office, and I worked for Miller Beer and Company's general counsel. So while I was there, I lived and I breathed the law and the experiences attached to it so that when I got out of law school, I could bring home not only the bacon, but bring things to this community to make a difference. In my last year, the U.S. attorney offered me a job and I became the first African-American woman to serve as an assistant United States attorney in the Eastern District of Wisconsin, right out of law school. Oh, my goodness. And then I'm sure that that wasn't the first of your firsts or the first of your maybe onlys. (laughs) You're correct. (laughs) There are many more. And I owe, I owe, oh, do I owe so many people. Some, I don't even know what they were doing behind the scenes. Because mere seven years later, after an illustrious career, not only here in Milwaukee at the U.S. Attorney's Office, The Office of U.S. Attorneys and this Office of Education for the Justice Department in D.C. had a problem in Georgia at one of the federal training academies with uh, black and brown people did not get their badge to be federal agents. Some didn't get to be federal attorneys without passing certain courses and all. And while I was an assistant U.S. attorney here, they recruited me to go to Georgia for a year to serve as one of the legal advisors and instructors for the academy. And while I was there, then Governor Tommy Thompson reached out and offered me a job after I applied long distance at the time to be a judge on the bench here in Milwaukee. And I became the second to Val Phillips to occupy that bench and served from 92 until 2019 (laughs) when Governor Evers appointed me to the Court of Appeals. And in that period of time, I served in many management roles. I led many statewide committees. I worked with Miriam Mike Elman on juvenile justice matters while I was on the bench in the early years. And, and I've had just so many opportunities to reach out and improve the lives of other people, which I think is my calling. How has the theme of the mural project resonated for you? When I saw Mauricio's mural, I sat down on the snowbank. <laughs> And I thought, wow, that's really big. (laughs) That is huge. That is gorgeous. That will be seen. And if it's not understood, 
like Giovanni said, it's not his problem. It's the viewers. How important is something like that, that mural, especially as large and as visible as it is? How important is that, do you think, for the students here at Marquette now and students coming to Marquette, as well as those who have already left? Well, I think there's a saying that has something to do with people like the don't want us, the black and brown, to be seen, to be loud, or to be heard. And he says, no, no. (laughs) It's going to be seen, people are going to talk about it, and you can hear what they have to say or not. And many of us, maybe it's this idea is expansive even beyond race and color. And that is that sometimes people want to marginalize folks and control them in certain ways to make them think that our true selves are just not enough. It's not acceptable. It has to be more. It has to be more like the majority in order to be appreciated or valued in some way. And so I think it's an expression there on Marquette's campus. I don't know, being on the north side of the building, does it mean it's the North Star? I don't know. But it certainly is an example that we went big and we went bold. And Marquette has done that at other times. So the art, sometimes people say, is it informing life or is life informing it? But I think that the saying sort of dates back to a philosopher from the late 1800s. And I think my life has always imitated things that I valued a lot. And so I didn't try and change myself. I fought against trying to change myself so much. Very dark skin. I think I got the award in my family for being the darkest. And my mother would always say, that means that you got more of God's gift than the rest of us. So enjoy it. And so I think that some people might look at it and go just for the colors, the things that he has. Is it about color, race, ethnicity, religion? What is it really? And it's to cause the discussion among many and give us an opportunity to respond. But I think I really admire his work because in reading about him, I learned that he watched other people do what people might suggest was not an instructive kind of art, that he watched them do graffiti. And from watching them doing something that other people didn't appreciate, he has developed something that is magnanimous. And if you don't appreciate it, then it's probably in the eye of the beholder rather than the artist himself. Marquette has been big and bold in my life. First of all, when I pressed and pressed, I didn't get pushed away. And I think that what we have to teach our children and Black, Indigenous, people of color is try another angle. Get some more advice. Maybe it's not this year, but next year. And maybe it's not the right place. I didn't pick the place for Secretary Patricia Harris. She discarded, I heard, through the grapevine, the 400 people and the 25 that were brought to her, I'm one of the second batch of 25s that she selected. Being second is not bad. (laughs) Being 10th is not bad. I'm number eight in the family of my siblings. And so what it taught me is is that the first doesn't have to always be what you think is the landmine that you have to overcome in order to get where you want to go. So while I was at Marquette, They brought in a young man to start the Black Law Students Association and work with us. He eventually became an Oklahoma Supreme Court justice. And then they brought in Derrick Bell as our speaker the year I was there. And would you believe (laughs) they brought in Derrick Bell? (laughs) 
Yes. And we had programs around things and they put in resources and all because what they would do is they recognized they would bring in a big group of black and brown and students of color and from all over the land and few of them would graduate. So I think they were trying to get a grip on bringing us together so we could saturate each other, make each other feel comfortable. And then they brought in programming to also suggest it. It's not the only way this worked for me. And I encourage students as I mentor them to try and find what works for them. For example, I couldn't study with the group. I couldn't do it. My Mississippi roots show through even now. And I tell students that I counsel, if you have to read a case 10 times, big deal. When you get it, you got it. And everything I've done, I've done through repetitive study because I was cheated out of my first years of education. In that one-room schoolhouse, there's no way in the world that woman who has been subjected to inequities in her own education was trying to teach five classes at one time where we could compete with others who had one teacher for maybe 10 students and she had five classes. And so it was not her fault. It was not my fault. I did not absorb the system's fault. Just like I didn't get the health care for asthma growing up, I didn't get their support for educational opportunities in Mississippi. And sometimes you don't even get them at Marquette if you don't deploy yourself in a way and let people know you need help. So at law school, for example, just one example, I lived and breathed at the law school. When I left class, I repeated that class with a study partner. It was someone who grew up up north. It was someone who was white. (laughs) It was someone who was much younger than me. We studied the entire three years together. And when we left class, we would teach each other a particular class. And if he was good in one class and I was not good in another one, we would swap out the classes that we would teach each other. And we both aced law school. But I put in a lot of time. So when my friends would say, hey, we're heading off here, heading off there. And I say, I'll catch you next time. Because I know what I need. And my knowledge about my needs and the fact that they're greater than the guy or gal next to me who's not had my experiences, it doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah, I tell students all the time, don't compare yourself to other people. Compare yourself with where you are now and where you want to go. Who've been the women of color who've served as inspiration for you? I know you mentioned Fannie Lou Hamer and Marion Wright Edelman. I'm guessing they're among that group. Yes, yes. But at the top of the group is my no formal education, Mary Lou Emma Panky Higgins Ford Miller, my grandmother. (laughs) She stood six feet tall, and I viewed her as someone who was probably nine or ten feet tall because she was a domestic engineer, and so she worked among families who had a lot. She listened closely to the things and places that they enjoyed, and she always shared her knowledge with us. And she said, and we would say, oh, I want to be like that one day. She said, no, no. What you want to be, you might want to have some things like that, but you don't ever want to be anybody, baby, but you. And my mother and my father were very strong because living in a apparently hostile society that disregarded the humanity of my parents, as I watched how they were treated, we went shopping or whatever, you couldn't go in stores, try on clothes, you stayed away from the majority group as much as you could because of fear of reprisals for no reason at all. And so they are my champions. The community, the hundred-year-old woman who was one who, she said she, the grand wizard 
child was one that she nourished while she was making dresses for us. And so people like that who told us how to make a way for ourselves and not to be selfish about it, but to give along the way because we would get back many more opportunities and things that we were given. And so there are other people in my life that grew up not far from me, Thelma Sias. There's Dr. Ernestine Willis. We both hail from the same 40-mile stretch in Mississippi. There's Professor Phoebe Williams, lifetime friend who grew up in the South. And then there are so many of Miriam Wright Elliman. I've had the joy and the pleasure of meeting a whole lot of lawyers and teachers and preachers because I'm a member of a lot of associations and sororities and organizations and legal affiliations that have brought the richness of things to my life. And then there are my siblings who, but for them, I wouldn't be sitting here. Someone had to take care of the home, (laughs) take care of the needs of the broader family. So when I needed a padded (laughs) blanket to sleep on at night, their uh, abodes were always available to me. If they had five bucks to send, they did. And if they didn't, they would send the box. And so there are so many people in the lives of people of color who contribute in so ways until I sometimes shy away from giving out so many names except for those people that are readily known to us. But the people like the women of old that we didn't meet but we read about and we know the Moses of our time, we know what they went through for others, not for themselves. And so I try to live the life of faith, family, and community in the broadest sense. I see myself as a fighter (laughs) for the little guy or gal. I think that I have the strength and capacity to take on the things that other people may shy away from. And that's part of the gift of feeling free through a solid, good education, strong family unit, and faith in God. What role has vulnerability played in your journey? It has played a lot because if anyone says that sticks and stones and words don't hurt, they're just kind of masking it. It hurts. When you work as hard as the people I grew up with and you don't get the reward for all that labor, it's painful to them and the people around them. And whether you're in a law firm, on the bench with colleagues, or whether you work in a corporation or you're just serving in a voluntary capacity at a food shelter. When you see people who are humiliated or disregarded or not respected, the thing that rises up in me in most is, even if they don't feel like fighting, I still do, for the dignity and the humanity of everybody. And I think that's one of the things I never felt restricted on is, and I hope that the students at Marquette do what they've been doing, not feeling restricted on expressing how they feel. And if the feelings are caused and real to them, then the society ought to respond in the appropriate way. And it should not be a one-time short dialogue that ebbs and flows with the popularity of a certain terminology. But it should be really embedded in the principles of Jesus Christ. That is, it should really stay the course and be the core value of the institution to reach and teach everyone. What impact do you hope to have on women of color, those coming behind you, those who are currently around you, and maybe even those who may be looking back at you? I want them to feel comfortable in themselves. So when you're comfortable, other things don't mask your strength. When I was worried about 
straighten half or if I sweat, will the edges be <laughs> my afro return? Will my makeup run? Is it too light for my dark skin? There have been so many things. Am I too loud? There are certain words I can't pronounce. And my husband just said, don't use them. Find another one or practice them. Let me hear it. Let me hear you say it. And those things, I think now, that are minor distractions compared to major things that you can accomplish, the minor things will detract and make you believe that they are reflective of who you are rather than the major composition of who you are. And many people have major composition about themselves. They have to. Because if they made it to Marquette University, I mean, when Professor Williams and I applied, there were people around us say, oh, we know people who are real smart. They didn't make it. They didn't make it. Really smart. So where did you go to undergrad? And I proudly would tell them, you know, historic black college. Used to be a white male academy. Gave to the blacks in Mississippi by the governor so that we would stay away from the white institutions. I said, I hail from there. Now you know where it is because of Donald Driver. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Driver. I love you. <laughs> and then, you know, and say they were in the University of Southern California, of course, you know, it's been in the news lately for people wanting to get in without regard to the rules. But back to the truth of the question is, I think people need to know that there are a lot of distractions in life. And sometimes we don't appreciate them as much as when we age. I'm more mature now. And so it's hard to tell someone who's 10, 20 years younger than me that it, you're going to be okay and have them absolutely believe it. But what we can do is be there now while they're going through their own journey and reassuring them and be there later when they need some support and then be there even much later and tell them, I told you, you could make it. <laughs> Look at you now. What are your hopes for the future? I hope that people stay hopeful because if we don't, we're doomed. And that's sort of the chastisement I give myself when I'm feeling like misunderstood or not appreciated despite the work and the intention. Oh, I don't feel like I didn't run the race fast enough. I should be further along the road. I should have pulled more people with me. I should have done this, that, and the other. And when I'm feeling weak in my own spirit, I look back and I sort of give myself the magical <laughs> kind of like air slap. To say, how dare you look at the assets and the resources and the people and the institutions that you have in your folder that so many others had nothing. I mean, my daddy didn't, my mom didn't, but every day they got up, they made sure we were fed. They made us think that we were the greatest thing since sliced bread, which we didn't eat. <laughs> they made us think a lot of things to help us move forward. And we used to sit at her feet when she was on say, how did you do it? Way back, back in the woods, you had to get there before the night fell so that you could see the road on the way. And all of the fear and anxiety and the lack, it was just so devastating to the point that it affects my core and I don't focus too far back about the things that I know that we had to endure. And so what I regret most is that we still have to run this race and expend the energy in the same way about some of the similar things that I expended my energy on before. Rather than moving on down the road, we seem to be stuck now in the repeat. I know people don't have the repeat button on things now, but we used to have these machines when we played 
eight-track tapes and you wanted things to repeat, you could just rewind a little bit. I feel that way. And my heart goes out to the people who are fighting the same fight, seemingly to those of us who grew up in the 50s and the 60s and 70s and beyond, feeling like, oh, no, we thought we had that taken care of for them. But we were wrong. Yeah, sometimes it feels like it's by design to kind of keep us in a particular place. What would you like the community to know about you and your journey? I want them to know that regardless of how hard the moment seems, the joy comes in the morning. It really does come in the morning, like the old Negro spiritual. It really comes in the morning. When you can look, you can get up and you say, I did it. There are others doing it with me. There are many more black and brown judges on the bench now. Governor Evers has appointed a whole lot outside of the county of Milwaukee and other counties in the state now. He's added diversity to the bench in a lot of different ways, just like Tommy Thompson did in the early 90s with Stanley Miller, who since passed away, Jackie Schellinger and Fred Rosa is on the bench and Carl Ashley and just so many other people. And there are other people who are not of color who've bonded with us to make great progress in criminal justice reform and things like that. So I would say to people that what you should know about me is I'm never going to give up or give in to those things that nag at me. I'm going to use all my strength to work on those things that really further all of us, because it's really about all of us, not just one of us. There's power in one, but my goodness, when you multiply that one times thousands and thousands and thousands of the young people coming now with the strength and talents that they have, I think that's why there's such a rumble about. It's because we know they're coming, we know they're capable, and we know they're going to do well. Thank you, Judge Maxine White. Your story stands as a testament to the amazing stories in our community yet to be uncovered. Our roots say that we're sisters podcast and the mural project seek to make these stories visible. Again, thanks to our sponsor, the Marquette Forum, Marquette's Office of Institutional Diversity and Inclusion, and the Haggerty Museum of Art for your support for this project.